Amen. Indeed, it's a privilege and honor to be with you this morning. This morning's scriptural text was read by our very own Emily Henderson. She is part of our student ministry. She's a senior this year at J-Town. So be praying for her that the Lord would use her mightily this school year and going into uh, her college career or whatever the Lord is leading her to next. Now this morning, I had a few things planned differently, but you know sometimes when we come up with plans, the Lord kind of vetoes that and, and checks things. So on this morning, as I had planned to come from Psalm 51 from a, a slightly different perspective, early Friday I left work very, very sick. I was in my bed all day Friday, all day Saturday, and the Lord brought to memory something we had done before on a Wednesday night on this very text. And I believe this is what the Lord will have for us this day. You know, sometimes, especially in my life, you get going so much that the Lord has to sit you down for a minute. Has the Lord ever had to sit you down for a minute? Where you are just willing to listen, to hear him, and to be still. Just sit down. The Lord has a way of doing that in my life very often. And I believe he did that this past week. But on the heels of our series of temptation, this is fitting. This is fitting. Our text this morning from the 51st Division of Psalm is a prayer of David. And this prayer is a model of repentance, and it has functioned as a model of repentance for Christians for decades now. So I tag this text, The Necessity of Repentance. The Necessity of Repentance. When was the last time you've been to the doctor? I know for myself, that's a question that my wife always seems to ask. When was the last time you've been to the doctor? This past weekend is an example. I'm just going to tough it out, and I'm going to, I'll be all right. But the Lord knows that he has gifted us with doctors. And it's because of his wisdom that the doctors even know anything. So we thank God for his providence and allowing doctors to be able to understand the anatomy to be able to diagnose what's going on in in our lives and in our body a lot of times. But there's one common thing that happens every single time that we go to the doctor, is you you come to the front, you check in, and you let them know you're there, you made it on time for your appointment. There's usually a, a number assigned to you in line, what time you've come in. But as after they call your name, we know the first time that they call your name, is they just want to bring you in the back because they need to check your vital signs. Every time we go to the doctor, they check your vital signs. They, they check your blood pressure. They check your weight. They check your height. They, they do some basic things each and every time you go to the doctor in order to gain an understanding of uh, broadly how you're doing. 
It's not invasive. It's not really deep or specific. But just from those vital signs, they can see if your blood pressure has been elevated. They can tell if, 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 if you've been eating too little or you've been eating too well. So they're able to check some things just by looking at your vital signs. And beloved, I submit to you this morning, there are some basic things that need to take place as a Christian. And some of the most basic things that that take place, they're not invasive things like one-on-one counseling, but they're basic things like, have you spent time in prayer? Basic things like, have you spent time in the Word of God? But one of the most vital things that God has given us as a gift, just as a base check to see where we are, is repentance. Repentance is a gift of God, because apart from the finished work of Christ, we wouldn't be able to repent, but he has given us repentance just to kind of check where we are as Christians. Because if we are living a life full of repentance, then when those big situations come up, we're not struggling trying to figure out where God is, because we've already been with him the whole time. But if we haven't been repenting to God, When the issues of life come up, we may find it hard to get back to God. We may have been away from God so long that we've forgotten how to get to God. Or we may have a sense of guilt that, man, I haven't talked to God this long. I'm just going to stay away now. But repentance is one of those basic Christian gifts that God has given in order that we may understand where we are in our walk. And though repentance is vital for every Christian, and though it is one of these most basic things, it is an often overlooked doctrine in the church. I often overlook repentance just because of a busy schedule. It's easy just to get up and and be focused on what you have to do today. I need to get to A, B, C, and D. And I, I can rush out the door without spending a moment in prayer with the Lord to oversee my entire day. As far as the body of Christ, we can easily overlook repentance in that we may be mindful of our actions towards God, but we forget about our actions towards one another. And we're not not repenting to one another. We can look at the the global church as far as repentance. There there have been some heinous things that done by the church in the name of God that the church needs and ought to repent for. But you know what? There's also the unbeliever and the believer that we need to repent because we have been separated from God. And apart from repentance, we will not be able to be drawn near to him. So there are some basic things that comes with biblical repentance. As fundamental as it is, it is counterintuitive to our human experience. I give you a perfect illustration. Why is it so hard to say I'm sorry? Why is it so hard to apologize to somebody you know you? I mean, see, this is not a question that, hmm, did I hurt their feelings? This No, you went off in front of them in front of everybody, and they embarrassed. You should say sorry. But yet, in our hearts, there's this, I don't want to do it. I don't think I should. They deserved it. I was just telling them what everybody else was thinking. And in our hearts, we have this pride that wells up, that doesn't want to be broken. God wants us 
to exercise this gift he has given us. And we don't like repentance because of our pride. We think that everyone and everything should bow down to our knees, should, should, should operate according to our affection, so we really don't see the need to repent. I don't need to say I'm sorry. I didn't do anything wrong. But another reason that we often forget about repentance is because repentance is needy. By repenting, you are actually confessing that you don't have all the answers. By repenting, you are actually acknowledging that you are not in total control of everything going on. So repentance is needy, but not only that, repentance is messy. When you get down to all the dirt and all the wickedness and the evil that you've committed, that you've done, that been done to you, and, and you actually have to think about how people have wronged you and, and how you have wronged other people, you actually got to get there. It's messy. Relationships are messy. This life is messy. Repentance is lonely. We like taking, we, we like taking a high, the, the high road where, where people will see us and exalt us and say, oh, you're such a great Christian. You really got things together. Well, repentance says, no, I'm broken. I'm the worst of all sinners. It's lonely. We don't like being low. But repentance is submissive. Because by repenting, I'm saying that somebody else has authority over my life. I'm saying that there's a standard outside of what I think should be the standard for life. It's submissive. And in this society that is increasingly set on glorifying self, this is the culture where we live. We, we live in a culture where it's all about me and I and what I want. L- uh, look at this post. Look at this uh, restaurant I was at. Uh, all the attention wants to come to us, whereas repentance has a posture of, no, not me, but God. It's not about me, but I'm willing to surrender all authority over all of life to God. See, but the culture not only rejects God, but the the culture presses this one step further and says, I am God. I have supreme authority over my life. I do what I want to do, when I want to do, how I want I know what the word of God says, but this is what I'm going to do. But you know what? It, it may not be a situation like that for you. Pride may not show itself in that way for your life, but pride may show itself and just how busy you are in the busyness of life, where you are so structured that you have not submitted to God in prayer just to find out what is it that he wants you to do for the day. And you're going to do what you want to do. Repentance is something that's not thought about because of pride, because of the culture we live in. Think about whenever we are caught in a sin, whenever we are caught in a lie. Some of our normal reaction is to make an excuse. Well, I was about to. Well, I didn't mean we make an excuse or we may rationalize. Well, I'm not as bad as. I have needs too. 
We may flat out lie. I didn't do it. You didn't do it. I didn't do it. Isn't that you on the, on the film? No, that ain't me. I ain't do it. No, but, but it's zero in. You have a tattoo with your name going down your shoulder like the one right there. That ain't you. No, that ain't me. We lie. Or there's the classic politician non-apology, if I may have offended anyone. We don't want that close to us because of our hearts. But no matter what the culture may say, God calls his people to something altogether unique. He calls us to biblical repentance. As the culture rejects responsibility, God's people accept responsibility through repentance. Why are our families failing? Not me. Why are our communities failing? Not me. Why are our schools failing? Not me. Why are churches failing? Not me. See, repentance takes responsibility and says, I I may have not done this part, but I've been contributing to this in some way. Let me examine my own heart and my own. I can't change them, but I can change me. So let me take a look at what I can control and deal with that. So when we talk about biblical repentance, there could be some misconceptions. There's two big misconceptions I really want to address. The first misconception with repentance is that repentance is a penitent transaction. What do you mean, Pastor? A penitent transaction is we think that if I do something wrong, as long as I ask for forgiveness, I'm straight. So we can do things like, I know I'm going over her house late, and I know what may go down, so I'm just going to repent now before I go there. Well, we treat repentance as as this commodity that we keep in our pocket just in case when God calls, we can just cash it in. As if our heart doesn't matter in our walk. And I'm separating my relationship with this, with this moral transaction that, oh, if I confess my sin, then I'll be right with God. It, you can do all the confessing you want, but if your heart is not broken for the Lord, it doesn't matter. You're not fooling anyone but yourself. So repentance is not a penitent transaction. But then also, repentance is not only for big sins. It's not just for the big stuff, the stuff that everybody else sees. This is the stuff even between you and the Lord, the little stuff, everything in between. Why why would we say that? Well, James 2 and 10 says that whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable of all of it. So even if I'm just saying a small lie, it's still sin. It's still rebellion in the midst of a holy and marvelous God. I don't just repent for for murder. Jesus tells us I need to repent for my anger because in my heart I've just murdered my brother when I'm angry at them, when I'm going off on them. It's just as if I murdered. This is the standard that God is calling us to. So what is biblical repentance? Biblical repentance is a heartfelt, godly sorrow 
for one sin together with a resolution to turn from it. I'll say that again. Biblical repentance is a heartfelt, godly sorrow for one sin together with a resolution to turn from it. So what does that mean? I can't just feel guilty because I sin and not change. That's, that, that's worldly guilt. Because normally, when, when we do things that are wrong, we, we do have a our, our conscience gets to us and we have this guilty feeling like, man, maybe I shouldn't have done that. But repentance don't, doesn't stop there. Repentance says, I should not have done it and now I'm going to make it right. I'm going to turn from it. I'm not going to do it again. I'm going to take a, another approach. That's biblical repentance. Look with me here in 2 Corinthians, the seventh chapter. 2 Corinthians, the seventh chapter, beginning with verse 8. It reads, for even if I, had, if I had made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For see, that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. Verse 10, for godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. What is Paul getting at? Paul had written a letter to the church at Corinth, and in that letter, it was a harsh rebuke, so harsh that he was grieved like, man, ah, those were some hard words. And he said, he, he, he regretted it, but in the sense that it was hard words, but when he heard the report that they had changed their behavior, that they repented of their sin, and they turned around. He said he rejoiced. He rejoiced. This is biblical repentance, to be confronted with your sin, to see sin for what it is, to confess it, to repent of it, and to turn from it. That's what the Bible is talking about with biblical repentance. But here's the key. Before you can be repentant, you must be broken. Here in the 51st Psalm, as we said, this is a prayer of David. This is a lament, a song of, of, of sorrow, of mourning. This is one of seven penitential psalms, psalms that is declaring my sin, I need forgiveness, I am confessing, and I'm depending upon you along with Psalm 6 and Psalm 32, 38, 102, 130, and 143. These are the penitential psalms. It's expressing regret for something that has taken place. And the particular situation that David is expressing regret comes from 2 Samuel, the 11th and 12th chapter, where in the 11th chapter we see that David... As the text says, during the season where kings would normally go off to war, David's at home chilling. 
he not at, he's not at, at war. He's not doing what he's supposed to do. And isn't, isn't it amazing when you ain't doing what you're supposed to do, usually that's when you find yourself getting into some trouble. So, yeah, so maybe we should just try to focus on doing what we're supposed to do in the first place, but if we don't, we can repent. And as David is at home, he goes out into his roof and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. And he look at his homeboy, he's like, man, you see her? Who is that? Go get her for me. His servants go and get Bathsheba. They bring Bathsheba to David. David sleeps with her and sends her back home. She's a married woman. He's, he's a married man. He's just committed adultery. And then sometime later, she sends word that she's pregnant now. So David is in the bind. Not only, not only has he committed this sin in secret, but now everyone is going to find out. And they're going to find out how dirty the king really is. So in this situation, he begins to plot and, and plan and to strategize how he's going to get out of it, right? So he, he sends off to go get this woman's husband, Uriah, bring him home. And his plan is to, as he is home, send him home to his wife where he would, he would relax, have food, and enjoy his home and his wife. And then he can make it look like that ain't my baby. It's a cover-up. But Uriah is dedicated, and he's faithful to the king, and he doesn't go anywhere. So David has a dilemma. So what David does is, even by Uriah's own hand, he gives him a death notice to give to Joab. And, and the notice says to put, put Uriah in the front, where the, where the battle was the toughest, and then have everyone move back so that he would fall. That's exactly what happened. So that's chapter 11, but in, verse, in chapter 12, we see that God sends Nathan the prophet to confront David. And he doesn't go up to David and be like, oh, you wrong for that. That was out cold. You shouldn't have he says, David, there's a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man had all these cattle. He had everything at, at his fingertips. He had no need for want of anything. But then there's a poor man, and this poor man had a little lamb. And he treated this lamb as if it was his own daughter. And he raised this lamb and he ate with this lamb. But the rich man being greedy, when a traveler came to his house, instead of, uh, uh, instead of uh, slaughtering one of his own sheep, he looks at the poor man and takes his and slaughters that sheep. The, the one possession that this poor man has. In an instant, David is outraged. He, I can't believe this is taking place. And as he is outraged, he said, that man should die. He, how could he do such a thing? And Nathan drops the, he drops the mic on him. David, that man is you. In that moment, he's convicted of sin. He sees just how good God has been to him. And now he understands the magnitude of his sin, the weight of his sin. And he says, I have sinned against God. This song is David's meditations through that. And before David could actually come to the point of repentance, he had to be broken. He had to understand just what was going on. Looking at Psalm 51. This is his path to brokenness. This is, this is what biblical repentance looks like. Verses 1 through 4. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. 
blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Brokenness comes when you have a keen awareness of your sinfulness. Look at David's language. In verses in verse 1, he is, he is pleading to God on behalf of God's character to, to have mercy. Stay your hand from my life. I deserve to be like the rich man and die. But Lord, I, I'm asking for grace right now. Have mercy on me, O oh God, according to what? According to your steadfast love. According to, to your faithfulness. Your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Isn't that how grace works? Because we have nothing to offer God is God offering us everything. He is pleading and begging for grace because he sees the weightiness of his sin. He sees how heinous, how vile, how corrupt he really is. And as he is confessing this, he is taking ownership. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, not their iniquity. Not, not those who, who obey my commands. Not those who did, done wrong to me. Not, not those who are being disobedient. Not those out there. Have, have mercy on me for my sin. Deal with me, God, not them. And cleanse me from my sin. He says, for I know my transgressions. A transgression, the, the word used there, he uses, he uses three words to talk about sin. He uses transgressions. Iniquity and sin. Transgressions is, is a word that's interpreted as rebellious, lawbreaker. Or you are going against God's standard. You, you could care less. Iniquity, that, that filth, that, that monk that you're in. And sin is to miss God's mark, to miss God's standard. So he's using all these words to illustrate just where he is. He knows that he's in sin. So there's a keen awareness of sin. Verse 7. I'm sorry. Back in verses 3 and 4, you see David doing that dichotomy. He's talking about his sins, the things that he has done. But in verses 5 and 6, 5 and 6, he's talking about his nature, his heart. The reason why he's committing these sins is because he's a sinner. Look here. Verse 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Not, not my mother was doing sinful things, back, but that's how near sin is to me. I was, I was crafted, and sin was there. It's part of my DNA, who I am. Behold, you delight, and then he goes forward. Behold, you delight in truth and in the inward being. You've created me for so much more. But yet sin's proximity to me is so close. So there's a, before you can be broken, leading to repentance, you have to have a keen awareness of sin. But then secondly, you have to be so dependent upon God and understand who you sinned against. Verse 4, he says, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. What, David? You slept with a woman. You've involved your leaders, 
you've murdered her husband, and now a child is coming, and you, you saying that you've only sinned against God? Dave, didn't you sin against all those other folks? What is he saying? And him mistreating all those people, he's breaking God's law. So the first and foremost person that he is accountable to is God for his righteous and holy standard that he just betrayed. Against you and you only have our sin. See, before we can actually be broken, we have to know who we're really sinning against. See, when you're living in anger with your friend or with someone else, it, it, the sin is really not with that person. Your sin and your beef is with God. When you're being disruptive and combative and, and gossiping and, and living how you want for yourself, your sin is not with the people you're dealing with. Your sin is ultimately with God. He's the one we have to give an account to. That person may forget. That, that person may or may not forgive you. But believe me, God has a record. He knows where your sin is. That's why we have to deal with him. So he has this awareness of sin. He knows who he sinned against. And in the, the same breath, he knows all that's going on, but he knows he can't do anything about it. He must depend upon God because he says in verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. The context right there, he's saying, unsend me, God. Take it off. Get rid of it. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. He's crying out, Lord, I can't deal with this sin on my own. I can't deal with this. I can't do anything with this. You, if I am going to be obedient to you, then you have to do something, God. I am fully dependent upon you. I can't just change the game myself. Lord, help me. Not only does he need to be dependent upon God, but then also he has a deep desire for change. Look in verse 10. Creating me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with the willing spirit. What is, what is he saying? He uses this word create. And he's speaking about God. This, this is almost like a, a Genesis 1 moment because what he's saying is, I don't have the capacity to be a good person. I don't have the capacity to do the right things. It's not in me to do it. I need someone to create ex nihilo out of nothing and make something occur in my heart. I need a new heart, God. And until you give me a new heart, I can't obey. He wants to change, but he knows that only God can do it within him. Create in me, oh God. Create in me a clean heart. That needs to be our prayers in the morning. When we wake up and begin the day, and we know what we're going to, to face, we know we can't. You, you can't handle that nasty boss. You can't handle those rude co-workers. You can't handle those crazy kids in your class. You have to get up and say, Lord, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Just so I can go about my day. Why? Because your desire is to be godly. Because you do want to be pleasing and acceptable. But we depend upon 
God to do it in us. So there's a deep desire for change, a recognition and dependence that a God alone can cause this. But then also, through brokenness, there's, there's a gratefulness for this grace. Look at verse 13, because he says, then. Well, then what? Lord, after you, after you do this stuff in me? It, 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 not before, but after you do this, only until you do this in me, then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O, o God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. What is he saying? Lord, not until the moment you cleanse me. Not, not before, but when you do. When you change me, I'm going to have something to say. I have a testimony to shout because I know who I am. I know where I've been. I know the mess. And when you change me, I'm going to have something to say. Christians should always have a shout. Don't you know what God did for you? Don't you remember what God brought you from? Don't you know how God has kept you? Don't you know what God is doing for you right now? We should always have a willingness to testify to the goodness of God. You scared about what they're going to say on your job? Don't you know that God gave you that job? You scared about your, what your friends will say? Don't you know that God put them friends in your life so you could be a witness and, and testimony to his goodness for their salvation? He's doing this. He's grateful for grace. And brokenness that leads to repentance. Then he has a new walk. Verse 17, 16. For you will not delight in a sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. You know what David just said? You're not going to be satisfied with religion. You're not satisfied with just going to church. You're not satisfied with just going to Sunday school, helping out on a Wednesday or doing something here and there. You're not satisfied with the act. But what does he say? He says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh, God, you will not despise. What is he saying? The sacrifices of God. He, he, he is fundamentally saying these sacrifices, the very things that bring you the most pleasure, the things that you enjoy the most, oh, God. Think about the whole Levitical sacrificial system. All of these different sacrifices, why? They, they, the, the, the aroma would come up and be satisfying and pleasing to God. It would cover their sin. He is saying, Lord, the thing that pleases you the most is when I'm low, when I'm broken, when I'm, I'm contrite. I'm not thinking about myself, but I'm thinking about your glory. I'm, I'm not thinking about what I want to do, but I'm thinking about what your will is for me to do. The sacrifices of God, a broken spirit. This is not a spirit that, that is, that, that false sense of humility, like, woe is me. This is, Lord, you do it. Lord, you take over. In my strength, I will go this way, but in your strength, I'm going to go this way. That 
contrite heart, that low heart. That, that reminds me, Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66, verse 2. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But then he says this, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Not the person who looks like they got it all together. Not, not the pious person whose Christianity, they, they like a super saint. Not that person who looks like on the outside they got it together, but the person who is lowly and broke and know that they need the Lord. He's asking for a new walk. And he says, you do it, Lord, you do it. Do good to Zion and your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. I believe this is figurative, not specifically for Jerusalem, but building up the people. Lord, as you do all of these things, as, as you break us and build us up, you will be building the people up. Then, ha, then, once you washed me, once you cleaned me, once you changed me, once you remade me, once I'm a new creature, once I have a new perspective on my sin, then, then you will delight in right sacrifices. Then in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. What is he saying? See, see, Lord, when, when everything is taken care of by your grace, then I can worship. Then I can do those Christian things. Then I can go back to the temple. I was scared to go into the temple before because I was worried about what they might say about me. But once you clean me up, it don't matter what they say about me. I just want you. I just want you. I can go back and worship. I can, I can stand right before you. I can stand and not worry about what you see. This is me, God. Because you've washed me. You've cleaned me. I don't got that monkey on my back no more. That secret's gone. Uh, no skeletons in my closet. Because you know, Lord, now I can worship. I can lift holy hands. And it doesn't matter what they uh, They may look at me funny. They may look at me funny. But I know what you've done in my heart. I know what you've done in my life. That's repentance. That's freedom. When you know you're right before God, psst, I'm right with God. What does it matter what my boss say? What, I know my family think I'm crazy for this church stuff, but I'm right with God. I know they don't like how I'm raising my children, but I'm right with God. When you are right with God, who else do we have to please? We're worried about pleasing everybody else but God. We, we got to look a certain way. We got to talk a certain way. We got to act a certain way. God says, just be pleasing to me. Don't worry about them because they'll like you today and they'll hate you tomorrow anyway. How do I know? Because they did it to my son. Free to worship. The repentance that David is talking about here is holistic. It's not just a part or an aspect of his life, right? Repentance means there's a, a 
physical change, that something is, is different. We can look at like 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. You don't, you don't, you don't have to turn necessarily, I'll read it. Where Paul says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Right? He's, he's, he, he's, he's indicating specific behavior, behavior that shows an indifference and a rebellion to God's will. So this list is not comprehensive. He, he's showing us that this outward behavior is, is, is indica- indicative of a heart issue. The reason why people behave like this is because their heart is wrong. But what does he say in verse 11? And such were some of you. What do he say? Don't get it twisted. Don't forget where you came from. Don't forget how you used to be. It'll teach you empathy for those who are still there. Don't, don't forget about it. Because it, you still have to remember who brought you this far. He says, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. What is he saying? There's a change of behavior. You no longer live like this. You now live like this. So there's a physical change, but there's an, an emotional change. Something changes with your affections when God gets to your heart and you're truly broken and repentant. John tells us, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. What is he saying? That when your affections are tied to this world, when you love this world and this stuff more than you love God, then you're really not repentant. When, when you really love sin more than you love, now you, there may be a struggle, but when, when there, there's an affection, a, a connection, where emotionally you just attach, that, that change comes. When God transforms your heart. And he will give you affections for him. He will give you a desire. Psalm 63, that, that thirst and hunger for righteousness. As a deer pants for water, so does my heart for the Lord. There, there's that, that depth of yearning and desire for the Lord. That's when your affections have been changed. But then ultimately, it's a spiritual change. 2 Corinthians five fifteen, And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Where spiritually, I'm not living for my own advantage. I'm living that God will be glorified in and through my life for everyone to see. See, but biblical repentance is completely contrary to the American way of life, isn't it? I mean, even recently, we see a demonstration of this where one of the political candidates called out the other political candidate for having a basket of deplorables, where a bunch of people are living in a certain way, 
and, and, and those are the type of people that's voting for this candidate. But you know what? Sometimes we can get so busy pointing fingers at everybody else's sin that we forget to point the finger at ourselves. And the American way is to make a whole lot out of everybody else's sin so won't nobody deal with your sin. If I could just put you on blast enough, then I won't be on blast at all. See, this is, what, this, this is the whole bully mentality even that we have in school. Why, why do bullies exist? Because they have an inferiority complex about themselves. So they, they put that on someone else so the attention is not towards them. See, when it comes to sin, beloved, we can't point the finger because God's finger is directly pointed at us. And truth be told, we all in a basket of deplorables. Because my Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. No one's righteous, no, not one. So when I'm in, I'm in that basket of deplorables. But guess what? By God's grace and by his mercy, he reached down into that basket of the vilest, of the wickedest, of the most deplorable, and he snatched me out. I, I wanted to stay there, but he snatched me out. Because if we had it our way, we'd stay, wouldn't we? But he snatches us away. Quickly. Ah. Nine. Well, now it's quick. It sounds like a lot, but it's quick. Why is repentance necessary? Quickly, nine reasons. Nine reasons why repentance is necessary. One, because of the sinfulness of sin. Repentance is necessary because sin is terrible. We, the Puritan Ralph Venning has a book, The Sinfulness of Sin, and in it, he just details how wicked and how horrible sin really is. When we take a step back to see that sin is not just bad things, but it's, it's rebellion to a holy and righteous and good God, and that is in me and I can't get rid of it on my own, that would lead me to repentance. Repentance is necessary because of, of the human condition. The Bible teaches a doctrine called total depravity, where man is totally depraved. That, that means every, every fabric, every fiber of my existence has been touched and affected by sin. My mind, my heart, my thought life, my emotions, every aspect of who I am has been touched and affected by sin. And apart from the saving work of the Holy Spirit, bringing regeneration in my heart, I can never choose him. I will never want him. That's why repentance is necessary. Repentance is necessary because sin has broken man's communion with God. In the garden, when Adam and Eve sinned, they their perfect relationship with God was broken, thus breaking that horizontal relationship with man and woman, breaking their relationship with the earth. But it all begins with a relationship with God. Through biblical repentance, I can be reconciled with God. Brought back into a meaningful communion with the Father. Repentance is necessary because strongholds are broken by it. If you want to be delivered from sin and stronghold an issue in your life, you need to tell someone about it. You need to confess that because what Satan likes to do, Satan likes to clam you up and keep you quiet so it's all festering by yourself and you have no rescue. But as soon as you confess that, it's, it's freeing. 
Because God, he has given us one another in order to uh, equip one another and strengthen one another. That's Hebrews 12 and 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, what does he say? Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which, which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We have to let that sin go through repentance. Repentance is necessary because it stifles the growth of pride and arrogance. There's no structure in our society any longer that, that keeps pride at bay. Because nothing's shameful anymore. The more shameful it is, the more retweets and, and likes you get these days. So there's no, there's no mechanism that keeps that pride and arrogance. But biblical repentance will crush pride. It crushes arrogance because you're saying, I am a sinner. I am vile. I am weak. Repentance is necessary because it does just the opposite. It fosters the pursuit of humility. It causes someone to love and to trust in God, to understand who they are in relation to who he is. Repentance is necessary because God commanded it. He commands this. Jesus says in Matthew 4, 17, for the time, uh, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's a good enough reason right there why we should be repenting. God said it. Repentance is necessary. Why? Because the gospel is affirmed. By repenting, I'm saying, I believe that Jesus has paid it all. And on his account, I can't have forgiveness. And through faith and trust in him, I am forgiven. The gospel is validated. Lastly, repentance is necessary because God is glorified. When one single life has changed, God is glorified. When you used to be, and now you're like this, God has a way of showing off your life to people. That they, they, they see what God has done. And they give glory to the Father. Wow. Look what God has done to their life. If he could do that for them, if he could change what they like, they could change what they used to watch, where they used to go, what they if If God could do that to them, he... He certainly can do that for me. How do we become a people who actually embrace the gift of repentance and practice it daily? Y'all got to forgive me. I left my handkerchief. How do we become a people who actually embrace Biblical repentance. We look to Jesus. He is our grace. We look to Jesus because Scripture testifies and tells us that Jesus was broken for us. If brokenness leads to repentance... And I can't break myself. I need to look to one who is broken for me. 
Because when I'm looking at the brokenness of Jesus, his brokenness leads me to repentance. His brokenness. Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions and he was crushed for our iniquities and upon him was the chastisement place that brings us peace and by his wounds we are all healed. See, see we say that flippingly. Oh, by his wounds we're healed. Don't you understand that? He was broken for you. And so when Jesus is with the disciples and he's saying, and this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What he's saying is every time you take this meal, think about the cross. Every time you take this meal, think about what I suffered and went through in order for you to know me. In order to be in a relationship with me. Upon him was the chastisement, chastise, punishment, pain. It was placed upon him. And what does the text say? That brought us peace. He, he was broken that we would receive peace. See, brokenness genuinely comes when we have a genuine understanding of what Jesus has accomplished for us. That moment when Nathan was reporting to David, that moment where he understood, my Lord, he has given me so much. He has blessed me with so much. And this is how I behave. This is what I do. It's that moment where where the sheer magnitude of the glory of Christ is seen. And you say, how could I have been living this way my entire life? And you're broken. Not because of how wicked the sin is, but because of how great the Savior you've been sinning against. I'm broken because of how marvelous, how spectacular, how glorious Christ is. And just the extent to which he has already, not, not about to, or how, how we say in the South, not because he was fencing to, fixing to, is because he has already accomplished these things. So when we look at David's prayer, Jesus' brokenness answers David's prayer. See, because Jesus was broken, those who had no mercy received mercy. Because Jesus was broken, the blood that was shed washes away my sin and cleanses me from all unrighteousness. See, because Jesus was broken for me, me the lawbreaker, now God is willing to hide his face from my sin. And when he looks upon me, my sin is uh, 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 away from me as far as the east is from the west. Because Jesus was broken, he has placed into me a new heart and a new spirit. And he has created within me that desire and thirst 
for him. Because Jesus has been broken, I will never be cast away, and the Holy Spirit will not be taken. He's answering this prayer through the body of Christ. Because Jesus was broken, I will have joy in your salvation, knowing what I've been rescued from. Because he was broken, I want to tell somebody and teach them uh, your ways, oh God. Because you were broken, I will take delight in the new walk that you place in me. Because the body of Jesus was broken, I am accepted. I'm accepted. Not because of what I've accomplished. Not because of my lineage. Not because of what I bring to the table. But because his body was broken for me. Christ Jesus. Agree with God, with your head and with your heart about sin. Stop that sin. Apologize to God. A biblical apology is, I'm sorry for doing such and such. Would you please forgive me? Biblical repentance is not, I'm sorry, but. No, no, but is not in there. Because biblical repentance takes responsibility. I'm sorry for X, Y, Z. Will you please forgive me? I turn around and I head in the right direction. And I don't stop until I get to glory. God desires for us to be in a relationship with him. 2 Peter 3.9 tells us, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but watch this, but that all should reach repentance. Today is the day. Now is the hour for repentance. Repentance is vital. How are your vital signs? Let us pray.